embedded in the human self-presupposition is the concept of mine and thine. And that expression, mine and thine in one way or another, exists in every known language. So you see how it is just a part of the nature of who human beings are. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Do private property and religious liberty go hand in hand? Are they truly inseparable? Reverend Robert Sirico, President Emeritus and co-founder of the Acton Institute, speaks at our 2016 Acton Lecture Series, defending private property as the solid ground of religious liberty. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You know, at the Acton Institute, uh, we don't endorse candidates. We can't as nonprofit. I don't think we can. Maybe we can legally. I don't know. But we tend not to do that. Sometimes uh, I'll say I don't endorse candidate, but I'll tell you who not to vote for. <laughs> like all of them. But I do have a friend here today who's running for office, and this is not an endorsement, but I just want to introduce you to my friend. And if you want to talk to him afterwards, you're welcome to do that. And that's Joe Rossi, who's running for a judgeship position. Joe, could you stand? I don't see you. There he is. He's wearing that vote for Joe Rossi, but uh, that has nothing to do with any endorsements at all. The... There are enormous debates about religious liberty going on, as you're very well aware. And if you followed anything in the news, you've heard even just this week with the uh, Supreme Court's uh, kind of half-hearted decision uh, allowing the Little Sisters of the Poor. I still get a kick out of the, the fact that the Obama administration had the audacity to take on a group called the Little Sisters of the Poor. I mean, uh, but... Uh, you, you see these debates coming up over and over again. You hear them. Uh, but one of the connections that is not so clear and that I, I hope to kind of offer some insights into today, and we'll have plenty of time to, to, to discuss this, uh, I hope, uh, today, is the connection between religious liberty and the right to private property. Because you, you, you hear religious liberty properly spoken of as the first right, you hear it associated with the right to assembly, which is correct, uh, the right to free expression and freedom of speech, which is correct. Uh, but there is a very concrete, very practical way in which religious liberty is guaranteed when the right to private property is clarified and is itself guaranteed. And I want to go through some of our reasoning on that and why private property is so essential to this and hopefully maybe give you a little bit to think about in that regard. It's noteworthy that the definition of private property as it comes up historically, as it is outlined both morally and then eventually juridically, emerges largely 
uh, in response to challenges to the right to private properties. When people would take other people's property, that people would defend their property and then understand that there were reasons for it. So in a sense, you could say it's kind of like uh, something that people knew prior to law, something in our DNA, something that we, we had a knowledge of. And in this regard, it might be likened almost historically in a religious sense to what John Henry Newman called the development of Christian doctrine. You know, Christian doctrine develops over the years a more uh, precise definition of certain aspects of the faith. And very often those precise developments take place in response to errors that were proposed at the time. So in private property could be likened to this, that we begin to see the implications of a thing and then tease out. Now, why is private property a human right? Why is it a natural human right? Uh, and I address this, and we, we think of it, my guess is that the vast majority of people in this room have no, uh, no uh, objection to this concept, but why? If somebody asked you, why is the right to take something and call it your own, to have, in a certain sense, exclusive use of it. We'll come to the question of exclusivity in a moment, but why is that morally justifiable? And the simplest answer I can give you, though I admit it'll be somewhat philosophical, is because human beings live by the use of our reason and are bound to the material world because we are physical uh, beings, uh, we live by our capacity to discern things, to use our reason in relationship to the material world. We're, we're bound to things more by our reason, by our mind, than we are by our instincts. And because of this is the case, and I think that's just a description of reality the more you think about it, we make plans based on our reason, based on our, uh, on our involvement with the material world, we make plans to satisfy our needs. You might say philosophically that people constitute themselves through the use of their property. We make ourselves and our presence felt in the real world, in the physical world, by the use of our property. The authority of private ownership is thus derived not merely from positive law, but from the very demand for human beings to be able to flourish. And that is the core argument that you find in classical literature, in Aristotle, in St. Thomas Aquinas, going down through the centuries of reflection on uh, the right to property and moral thinking. So all of this is to say simply that embedded in the human Self-presupposition is the concept of mine and thine. And that expression, mine and thine, in one way or another, exists in every known language. So you see how it is just a part of the nature of who human beings are. Ownership is tied to a very sense of self. And that's why it becomes very important. I, I wanted to, I hope I didn't over-elaborate that point, but I think it's important because we tend to just think of the right to private property as something granted by 
the state granted by the legislature or the judiciary, and it is not. The state or the judiciary so grants the right to private property because it's something in the nature of human beings. Now, we talk about scripture, and I want to just touch a little bit on scripture. Uh, it's wi widely recognized that religious and moral concerns have been central to the shaping of all of the concerns that have to do with the use of property in the Western world. Uh, you see these concepts and legal notions presented in Genesis, Exodus, throughout the Mosaic law. The commandment, thou shalt not steal, presupposes the right to private property. Uh, you also find that the Mosaic law is foundational in the treatment of property in our philosophy and in our law. The recognition of property is perhaps the most obvious, as I say, of the Decalogue's strictures against theft, against covetousness. Leviticus and Deuteronomy is laden with rules that apply to possession, to property, to ownership, to exchange, and various things like that. And as in all else, Christianity's approach to property is built on our elder brothers, the Jewish tradition, our Jewish foundation. Uh, the famous passages in the New Testament regarding communal ownership of property we need to address because they are abused and misused very often, especially those chapters in the Acts of the Apostles. They're sometimes adduced as uh, proof of a primitive, uh, of communism in primitive Christianity, a kind of uh, proto-socialism, if you will. But a serious exegesis of the Acts of the Apostles reaches a very different conclusion, of course. Acts 2, verses 43 and following, does not at all indicate a once-for-all uh, state of the church with regard to property, but rather should be seen as periodic acts of charity as certain needs arose. The narrative in Acts further indicates that such acts were voluntary at all times, and that essentially is what makes it antithetical to socialism. There was no supposition on the part of Christianity, let alone a mandate in Christianity and in early Christianity, that one has to divest oneself entirely of one's possessions and contribute to the needs uh, of some kind of communal uh, bank account. Even in the Acts of the Apostles, where this experiment, where this uh, uh, situation is going on, when somebody withheld their property from the community, they were condemned not because they didn't have the right to their property. And in fact, Peter, in this passage I'm referring to, explicitly says, when you sold that property, was it not your own? And after you sold it, were the proceeds still your own? The problem was that Ananias and Sapphira, the people in question here, lied about it. So it wasn't a matter of a kind of communal or socialistic ownership uh, of property. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, in his famous passages in the Summa Theologica, tends to promote, it says that, that private property tends to promote responsible and prudent use of material things through the proper and efficient stewardship for the sustenance of human life. He also says that the regime of private property brings about more peaceable and the right ordering of society 
and that that can be better guaranteed under a regime of private property than with communal ownership where there are confusion of rights and responsibilities. He also says that uh, there is a reciprocal communication of needs under the reign of private property. And the achievement of this phrase is used in Aquinas, the universal destination of material goods. And it's used also, particularly in the Catholic tradition, universal destination of material goods, meaning that God gives the world to the human race, but the purpose of the material world is to benefit uh, all of humanity. And what Aquinas says is that private property is the institution that better guarantees the universal destination of material goods. Uh, so, secure ownership of property promotes economic initiative, uh, enables economic exchange, makes possible the realization of the universal destination of material goods. All of this is a summation of uh, Thomas Aquinas's view as expressed in the Summa Theologica. And then in more modern times, particularly in the 19th century, uh, one of the, the key meditations on private property comes from Pope Leo XIII in his first of the Catholic social encyclicals called Rerum Novarum, where he's taking account of the uh, advent of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of people will superficially read Rerum Novarum and say, oh, well, he's, uh, he's a socialist. Uh, the, one of the greatest defenses of private property exists uh, in Rerum Novarum, where he speaks of the right of private ownership as being held sacred and inviolable. Sacred and inviolable. Why would the right to private property be sacred? Because of the proximity, the intimacy between human flourishing and the ability to pull from nature something and call it one's own and utilize it in the way uh, that I've just outlined. Uh, and even in Leo's day in the 19th century, there were threats to the church's property, particularly her charitable institutions, uh, because some would say and said then, and really uh, one of the great proponents of this was Karl Marx, was that charity has no place in society, that everything people need should be provided by the state. And it's a denunciation, I'm serious, this is not a joke, a denunciation of charitable institutions because charitable institutions kind of anesthetize people to their misery and impede, impedes the revolutionary impulse, which is what Marx was all about. Let people suffer, suffer a little and they'll bring about the revolution, will overthrow the reign of private property. And oddly enough, we have a candidate for president who in 1981, without citing the source, nonetheless rearticulated that and said that he didn't believe in charity. He believed the state should provide, and that's Bernie Sanders, comrade Bernie Sanders. Actually, I'm talking about political candidates. I know Chris always gets nervous when I get into this field, but um, this is my obligation to make the comfortable feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, I really find it a relief that Bernie Sanders is running such an honest campaign because finally, Finally, we have a politician in America who admits he's a socialist. Yeah, this is rare. This is rare. So we'll give Bernie Sanders a round of applause for that, if nothing else. Um, now, here's the connection between, and you may already see where I'm going, between religious liberty and property. Uh, 
one of the objective, uh, one of the objections to uh, this kind of clear, um, vigorous defense of the right to private property on the part of religious leaders uh, is to say immediately, yes, but private property, okay, you can, you can have uh, private property. Uh, maybe they'll begrudgingly admit that the importance of being able to build and manage institutions that reflect our religious convictions requires the right to control those institutions, uh, to be able to shape culture, to be able to influence society, not in a coercive way, but just in an institutional way through our ownership of things. Some people will say, yes, but private property is not absolute. And that's supposed to kind of, in my dialogue with people like that, uh, I very often will hear this uh, and they'll say, well, yes, but private property is an absolute. They don't want to denounce private property, but they somehow think that by saying it's not absolute that they've ended the debate. But I have several questions. Uh, you find very few references to absolute rights in academic literature. Uh, so uh, that in itself, in other words, who says that any rights are absolute in that sense? Even the right to life is not absolute. For instance, when you take another life, as unfortunate as this may be, but when you have to take another life in justified self-defense, the only way you can protect your life or the life of another innocent then, and that results in the death of another person, that is not a violation of a right. That's the protection of some rights. The same logic of intentionality and an action's object and the side effects underlines uh, the long-standing moral teaching on capital punishment. Now, I know there's great debates on capital punishment. We could have them. But under certain circumstances, even in the most liberal, official, Catholic understanding, uh, capital punishment is permissible under certain circumstances. So it shows you that the right to life itself is not absolute. But aside from all of this, it's very difficult to find anybody on the pro-free market side, on the pro-property rights side, that would say that right, the right to property is absolute. Uh, the the moral tradition has always held that private property serves, as I say, the universal destination of material goods. I suspect, rather, that those who object and say private property is an absolute really have something else going on. And that I think that behind many people's uh, insistence and their constant reminder that private property is absolute is the less noble desire to expand the circumstances under which this right does not apply, or may be waived, or may be diluted, or may be obfuscated. A way to make a distinction, for instance, between the right to private property and human rights, as though these were radically distinct species of rights. Rather, I think that property rights are an extension and a safeguard of human, human rights. It's the way in which we implement human rights. It is a subcategory of human rights. Uh, so drawing so stark a distinction between the right to private property and human rights, I think, uh, is uh, very dangerous for a whole wide variety of reasons. 
the importance of economic liberty to human flourishing is made practically possible by our ability to control what is ours. I want to illustrate and very briefly to do this so we can get to the discussion, the various ways in which a disregard for the right to property can impinge on religious liberty. And perhaps among these, the first I would like to identify is eminent domain laws. Uh, they're called this in the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, these laws uh, basically, especially the abuse of these laws, diminish not only the capacity and the opportunity of churches to fulfill their mission, they can also affect the families served by these charitable institutions. And this is the, the reason for this is because the way in which special interests are incentivized, when in the name of economic development, and now not even just for public entities, but now uh, under certain recent rulings of the Supreme Court, eminent domain for private use, uh, the way in which economic development, uh, taxpayers, rather than benefiting businesses, are permitted to take condemned property. Or when such beneficiaries are not required to deliver on the economic benefits they promised in the first place. And when the costs to a community of the condemnation of property outweigh the benefit, the economic benefit to a community. So eminent domain laws should send up a, a glaring red flare in terms of the violation of private property. There's another more insidious set of laws that slowly eat away at the right to property. And these are occupational licensure regulations. In many occupations, licensing is necessary to conduct businesses legally. Thus, the capacity of individuals to provide for themselves and their families is very often made dependent on the approval of a plethora of regulations implemented by states and counties and the federal government. When the state or other guild-like organizations that operate as an arm of the state for the purpose of licensing are able to control entry into trades and into professions, there is a temptation to lose the focus on the common good and instead reap benefits for those who are already in secure positions. In fact, if you read the history of the, um, uh, the lobbying efforts that go to enact these kinds of licensing law, licensure law, laws, it's often the case that there are existing businesses that already want to keep people already in existence and want to keep people out of those trades or businesses. This situation has a disproportionate impact on the marginalized, the weak, for whom completing licensure requirements is already a, a real burden. In a climate of hostility to moral truths, contained in revelation, contained in the moral tradition, Truths known by right reason, such licensing becomes a tool to force believers into lie. Now, historically, we didn't worry about that in this country. You had various licensing things because you say, well, you want somebody who is going to, I don't know, change your tires to know what they're doing. And so we have some kind of guarantee. There. 
But when you live in a society that becomes increasingly secularist, not just secular, but secularist, then these licensing laws, these licensure laws, can be used to impede. And that's what's happening in our society now. And so we have a real tradition of these kinds of things in this country. We haven't even begun to see the way in which, or we've just begun to see it, the way in which these things can, can happen. A second example uh, to contemporary threats, uh, of contemporary threats to religious liberty comes uh, how economic liberty becomes more, not less important, as the climate for religion becomes less hospitable. And I'm speaking primarily here in an American religious context, where the, as I say, the crucial link between religious liberty and private property has been largely ignored because we haven't been under attack. But there is an, as there is an increasingly hostile and climate toward genuine and robust religious liberty, uh, we see the reaction to these things. Leading intellectual and political figures have stressed the freedom of worship over the freedom of religion, which is an implicit secularist notion that religion is a phenomenon to be closely restricted to an increasingly private sphere. For example, to worship within the four walls of the church. One of our leading presidential candidates, not Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, was quite prominent in saying, uh, in discussing, in this context, the need, get this, from a presidential candidate, this would be unthinkable 20 years ago, the need of eliminating beliefs such as man-woman marriage and the sinfulness of homosexual activity, said this, quote, deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Close quote. A presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, said that in a speech. In the same spirit, the mayor of one of our large cities indicated or initiated the process of legally requiring all pastors to submit their homilies to her to ensure that they were not engaging in hate speech. This was in the city of Houston. Now, granted, she lost that battle, but the very idea that you could do it at that point presents some real, uh, some real dangers. It, you know the situation in our own city and what happened here with our tax-exempt status being um, uh, questioned because we didn't believe in charity. Can you imagine that? We produce a thing called Poverty Inc. and Poverty Cure, but we don't believe in traditional charity. This is what the legal brief that the city enacted against us. Now, again, that failed. But these are the kinds of threats that become. So here's just an abbreviated list of uh, the ways in which religious economic freedom, the right to dispose of one's property freely, uh, is under attack. It's been attacked. Uh, it attacks the very uh, process of her mission, uh, of religious mission of the church, and the character threatened. In Arizona, a Protestant pastor was arrested for holding Bible studies in his home. Authorities alleged that he violated zoning laws that prohibited regular assemblies in such residences. So you can't have regular birthday parties or anniversaries in your home. If that, I mean, that's the kind of legislation. In Pennsylvania, 
in Washington, D.C., and many other places, Catholic dioceses with financial problems have been unable to manage their own properties reasonably due to uh, opponents who use historic preservation codes to prevent the alteration, sale, or demolition of church structures. In Massachusetts, Illinois, and other jurisdictions, Catholic agencies have been forced to abandon their adoption services in the face of mandates to place children with same-sex couples. These mandates have, for, uh, have, uh, have force because the state controls the licensure adoption agencies, not just the funding to those agencies, but the licensing adoption uh, uh, procedure. Uh, in a case that continues to be litigated, we have the Little Sisters of the Poor, and that's not over with yet uh, either. So you have all of these things and another dimension of the right to private property, and that is the relationship to the family. Pope Leo stressed the close relationship between private property and the family, and the reason he did it is that he understood that the enemies of private property were also the enemies of the family. Friedrich Engels wrote a book based on Marx's text, it was posthumous, <coughs> to Marx, called The, um, the Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. <coughs> In Engels' account of history, the nuclear family, which he believes should be detonated, basically, <coughs> emerged in the last stages of capitalism, and as the result of the development of a class system built upon monogamy and private property. <clears throat> For Ingalls, this must be destroyed, in his mind, <clears throat> in order for a full egalitarian society to emerge. What is key to Engels' mind is that economic relations have polluted a previously pristine state of human sexuality by the emergence of private property, uh, which was designed to protect patriarchy in his idea and the middle class family life. Engels thus entertained a thoroughly cynical view of what he called the bourgeois marriage. Likening husbands to the bourgeoisie and wives to the proletariat, he argued that it is necessary for the sake of sexual equality to liberate women from the home. He said this, quote, this in turn demands that the characteristic of the monogamous family as an economic human of society should be abolished, close quote. In a concise expression that, of the linkages that I've sought to emphasize, Engels refers to the utopian socialist Robert Owen's list of three main obstacles to his vision of social reform, private property, religion, and what he calls this present form of marriage. In one sense, Engels sees what many contemporary uh, debaters fail to see, that private property is the institution that can and does reinforce the family and vice versa. The alternative, free love under a socialist regime, <clears throat> will create chaos to the extent that it lacks the ability to assign responsibilities naturally provided in families under private property. The Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises underscored this absurdity when he so delightfully wrote this, quote, it is certain that even if a socialist community may bring free love, it can in no way bring free birth, close quote. The contrast between the visions of society offered by Engels and St. Thomas 
for example, could not be starker. The latter view of property is a safeguard of freedom, prudence, economy, family well-being. In the Christian tradition, in the Jewish tradition, property, correctly understood and properly regulated, is the preserver of peace, a method of, for harmonious human interaction and a means toward human flourishing. It also is a guarantor of religious freedom, a role that becomes ever more clear in respect to Christianity as we see the erosion of Christianity in Europe and the Americas. The links between private property rights, economic liberty, and religious liberty are clear in, uh, from, from throughout history and in moral teachings. We neglect them at our peril. Thank you very much. <clears throat>or if it reaches a point where the developer says, I can't pay that to that owner, then they should move to another property. Right. No, I, I agree. I, I think, I, I suppose theoretically I could come up with some reason to say, you know, that a piece of property could be expropriated for some very dire reasons pressing upon an objective set of uh, things pertaining to the common good. But I think those are very rare uh, instances. And especially when you look at a lot of these um, instances where eminent domain laws have been enacted, where property has been taken, uh, the moral um, obscenity of not even using the property for the purpose originally set out. I mean, there are case after case after case, precisely for the reason you say they didn't have to pay the real value, so they didn't have to think of all the consequences uh, of the thing. And then they leave the, the, uh, the property to, to no use at all. Uh, so yeah, I think this is uh, you know, immoral uh, in, in a very grave way, and a very dangerous way for society as well. Thank you, Father. Um, you mentioned Bernie Sanders without going into any particular details. Um, I live out here in Monroe Center and have run across several, normally young people, who've been telling me uh, that I need to sign uh, any number of petitions to legalize marijuana, to pay for any number of other things that, and uh, while they're wearing their Bernie Sanders pins. 
I guess the question I, I'd like to ask is, what is the attraction and what is the natural end? I've, we've tried this before in human history many times, and we've seen what the end is. What, can you describe that? What, what is the attraction that seems to um, appeal? Well, I, I would speculate that there are probably three, three uh, reasons, probably more, to explain this. The first is that they are young, and they, they have no, I mean, it, ask them if they have any memory of the existence of the Soviet Union. I mean, on, on any practical level, what they know about how people lived in Romania or the Czechoslovakia or in the Soviet Union, uh, or how they live today in Cuba. Uh, uh, so, and Bernie Sanders, you know, went on his honeymoon to the Soviet Union or shortly thereafter. So ask them that. Ask them if they have a memory. And, and you, you see some of these cute quips where they're interviewing these people and say, well, you know, um, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has chosen Karl Marx as his running mate. Do you approve? Oh, yes, I think it's a very good idea. Yeah, I'll vote for them. I'll vote for them. You know, they, they don't know. I, I uh, saw a poll. Now, you don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, if it's on the internet, it has to be true, right? But um, one poll indicated that a large number of these folks think that socialism has something to do with social media. You know, and to ask them a definition of what you mean by socialism, uh, in most cases, I would agree, yeah. If, if that's what socialism is, I'm fine. If, if the first century church was socialist, I'm fine with that. The people voluntarily, uh, I mean, families do it all the time. Religious orders do it all the time. Charitable organizations do it all the time. The question is whether you can force people to do that. So I think that's the, the first thing. Second is the economic ignorance uh, of people. You know, all of the 1% uh, the stuff. Uh, and I have to be a little generous because I used to believe that stuff too when I was much younger and much thinner. Uh, much less gray than I am now. I remember the day I had a conversation. I mean, it was one of the turning points in my life when this friend uh, said, well, what do you want? You're, you, you claim to be a socialist. What do you want? Uh, I said, I want a redistribution of wealth. And he simply said, well, OK, let's say we redistribute wealth. Tomorrow, what happens? I said, well, then everybody is equal. He said, OK. What do they do practically? What's the next thing they do? I said, well, they go to work. And he, said, no, no, no. he said, wait a minute. Where do they go to work? I said, well, they go to their jobs. He said, no, 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 there are no jobs. I said, what do you mean there are no jobs? He said, you've just redistributed the wealth. By which you mean not the wealth, their toothbrushes, not even their mink stoles and their automobiles and their boats and their houses. That's a fraction of what wealthy people live off of. Uh, oh, that's, uh, what they live off of is a fraction of what they own. What they really own is what Marx identified as the means of production. Capital. What's capital? Capital is not the fish. Capital is the net. Capital is what makes the fish possible. And that's what they want to redistribute. That's where the 1%, and I don't even agree with those numbers, by the way, but let's take it, you know, that's where it is, and it's employing people. And the problem arises not 
because of free markets, but precisely because of these kinds of legislation, this kind of regulation, this kind of crony capitalism, which is antithetical to free markets. So I think that's a second uh, reason. Uh, possibly a third reason is uh, that a number of those young kids haven't waited for marijuana to be legalized <laughs> to imbibe in it. And it's fogged their thinking. You know, I could probably come up with a few more reasons, but I want to redistribute the questions. <laughs> Father, first, thank you for what you do here and in the community. Um, you had mentioned, I want to kind of piggyback off what the last guy mentioned. Sanders people are so energetic and they're so, they're, they're the energizer bunny times too. And it seems that way with an awful lot of people and that type of thinking. How come people who are kind of acting friendly or different are so hesitant to engage in debate or it just seems like they're not spineless, but so they will not combat in the same energy, energy wise, although we have the same beliefs that a socialist will or somebody who really basically is just hates the church. You mean we tend to have more manners than some of the, maybe it's because we're not imbibing and, uh, well, anyway. Um, no, I, I, think, I think it is true, well, it, it's, it's correct to identify complacency. Um, and and uh, this applies both to the Bernie Sanders people as a, a fourth reason, uh, but also it applies to whatever we want to call them, actin-minded people, conservatives, libertarians, whatever. Um, and that is that we all enjoy the benefits of liberty. And because we enjoy the benefits of liberty, we, we think we don't have to think a lot about things like, why do we have the right to private property? And what's the moral foundation of it? And what are, what are the uh, ramifications of violating the right to private property? We just don't think about that because the world is the way it's always been, right? It's always been this prosperous. It's always been this free. And we, we have become complacent. We have to tend to the roots. And that's why the Acton Institute exists and other good institutions uh, exist to really call us back to examine the foundations. I also think that there tends to be on the part, and this let's put this as a fifth uh, reason on the part of the, the left, is that young people are idealistic. And I think that's great. I think that they should not settle for mediocrity. Uh, the problem is, if you go through a public education system, and increasingly even sometimes private education systems, even religious education systems, where uh, these kinds of classic ideas that enable us to understand how society forms, how civil discourse is engaged in, how people, how, how valuable traditions are, um, because they carry with them certain truths that are implicit. We, they're not, you know, explicit anymore. I mean, my mother never cooked from a recipe. She was a great cook. She never cooked from a She just watched her mother cook. And her mother, my grandmother, didn't cook from a recipe. Uh, and, and this tradition that's handed down, at some point we need to get it down on paper. At some point, we need to make the implicit explicit again. 
And I think this is the moment, this is a dire moment for us. We need to be making these things. That's why I belabored this point on private property, because you see, especially with these licensure laws, the reason that they are so effective is they don't affect a large number of people. You know, if you have a historic uh, preservation legislation, I don't live in a historic home. It's old, but it's not historic. Nobody cares. They put white siding on the front of my rectory. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, but I don't live in that. There are a certain number of people who live up on Heritage Hill who are affected by this. Most of us are not affected by that. Um, you and I are not beauticians, so we're not affected by that. Uh, you and I, and if I begin going down the list of what's covered under these regulations, you will be astounded to hear what's it. We're not a pharmacist, so we're not affected by that. We don't run adoption, we're not affected by it. We're not, and you lay out all these things, and you see how much control through simple little licensing procedures. Well, isn't it reasonable that you know your mechanic knows what he's doing? And you know, but then what you end up happening have happened is that little by little you have this little fascism that's nibbled away, and your your right to private property becomes like a piece of Swiss cheese. It's just been bored through, and there are only little connective tissues. We need to understand that. We need, in some way, to rebel against that. Uh, we intellectually rebel. We politically rebel against those things. And I think that's what we, we need to do. Yeah, so this question has to do with licensure in, in, in the area of health care. In, in, in my world as a physician, you know, a lot of doctors are worried about the kind of the, the kind of attacks that are happening on the doctor-patient relationship. You know, if he goes to a doctor, he's got his head in his computer, or you may not see the doctor, you may see the nurse or the physician assistant or a nurse practitioner and so on. In, in the licensing world in Michigan, you know, there's optometrists that want to do things that eye doctors traditionally had done, or, or physical therapists want to diagnose and treat, or chiropractors or nurse anesthetists want to, you know, without a doctor being done. So these are all kind of, in, in, in our state, under, you know, licensure issues or scope of practice issues. And should I, should I be uncomfortable because... I see that as a kind of alarming trend that the, the shortage of doctors is going to be answered by perhaps less qualified people in, um, in, in, in health care. I think it is a mistake to equate licensing with qualification. I think that there are a lot of people who are very qualified to do a lot of different things that might not necessarily have licensure. And I think that the, the legitimate concern for qualifications is a different thing than licensure because there are other ways of certifying people's qualifications. There are all kinds of, and they don't exist now, or if they exist, they exist very tangentially because you, you assume the government is taking care of us, right? The FDA is taking care of us, right? Uh, and, and what I'm saying is what would happen is we'd have a whole plethora of various kinds of certification that would come up that would be private, that wouldn't be governed by uh, the state, and that wouldn't have the kind of force of law that creates disincentives. So one of the reasons for the shortage of medical doctors is the guild system of the medical, uh, American Medical Association. It's the biggest trade union, the most powerful trade union in this country. What if we had a different system? For instance, at the turn of the century, uh, the last century, there were various kinds of uh, medical schools that existed 
that enabled a great deal of diversity of kinds of medical care that people responded to. And these were very closely associated with what were then called fraternal organizations. So what were they? They were Polish groups. You can still find remnants of it. The Knights of Columbus, by the way, is an, uh, an example of one of the remnants of these fraternal organizations. But you had the, um, the Eagles, and you had this whole black African-American medical association that grew out of these private insurance arrangements that African-Americans would have and where people would pay into it when they needed something, then they could go to the doctor and take advantage of this. These were insurance companies that existed. And the result of that was that these insurance companies enabled uh, medical schools. There were whole black medical schools. There was this, you read the tradition on this, this thing, it's really, in, really quite enlightening, uh, that existed that served communities where people trusted and there were these bonds of relationships. I think we need to radically rethink the way we're doing it and minimize the role of politics, minimize the role of the state. Uh, I think the state has to exist to provide the overarching context but not to guarantee every single thing in society. First of all, it can't do that because it doesn't know. And secondly, it's so open to the, the exploitation by people who have already arrived uh, and who want to close out because, it, you know, you can get a higher salary uh, if, if there are fewer people competing for, for the job. So I, I think those are very dangerous things. And one of the um, hopeful things that I see, and I, I, I'm just waiting for the government to clamp down on this, are these private, I don't know what they're called, these private uh, insurance companies where groups of, the, usually they're Christian groups, but I, there's no reason they'd have to be Christian, uh, where groups of people gather together and they, I think they pay into a certain amount. Uh, and if you need a doctor, uh, you go to the doctor and you submit the thing and they pay it for you. And the, the larger the group is, I mean, if, periodically I get a, a little... Um, piece of paper to sign, will you, uh, um, will you confirm that so-and-so is a member of your church, that they, in, in this particular group, they don't use, abuse alcohol, they don't smoke, they're regular practitioners of the religion and stuff, and it's all private. And these, these groups grow, and, they, and they're independent of the government. And I think there are a lot of these kinds of very creative relationships, voluntary organizations that could exist, <clears throat> but don't exist precisely because of licensure procedures and, and regulations that exist. We have to find creative ways out of this. I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, first of all, if I open, put a shingle out front saying that I'm going to do hand surgeries, I'm not going to get many takers, you know? And if I do get a taker, when he walks out, there are not going to be any more takers, you know? Father, it seems that uh, the government has expanded property rights in one area, and it's kind of an artificial construct of intellectual property. And they keep expanding it. Every legislative session, they, you know, there's a strong lobby for ex Disney for expanding intellectual property rights and processes and drug makers and other things. Uh, it seems like a perversion of the market to me. Can you speak to that a little bit? You haven't. This is a big debate, and it really is worth um, a whole seminar all by itself because um, a lot of our friends will disagree about this. I believe uh, 
in certain intellectual property rights, and I think what com complexifies this now is the technological question. Um, but I think we just have to kind of enter into this and define what is mine and what is thine. Uh, and uh, I think I don't see it as necessarily uh, um, a, um, a weakening of freedom or weakening of uh, the market, but a protection of certain things that exist that belong to certain people. And you have to negotiate the contract. It really is based on the contract. So if <clears throat> I uh, sing before you, I may say, uh, and you wouldn't want that to happen because you'd have people walking out of here holding their ears. But if I sing before you, I can say for X amount of dollars, I will sing for you, but you may not record this. Or you pay me a little bit more, you may record this, uh, but I get a certain residual from that. And then down the line uh, where we negotiate the contract. So the contracts become, but I think over time, the contracts become complex. But I think over time, the contracts will tend to be more um, stable and, um, what do I want to say, uh, expected. That they, we're, we're developing a new set of traditions. I guess that's what I'm saying. We're developing a new set of traditions. Uh, and I don't think that's all settled yet. So it does seem like chaos, uh, you know, in the same way that when automobiles came on the scene, everybody thought they were going to scare the horses. Um, now, on the other side, there would be people arguing that uh, you should be able to take my book that I've written and labored on and be able to republish it on your own because I don't own the ideas and the formulation of the ideas. I think that is a mistaken notion. I think that becomes dishonest. I think that's the root of what plagiarism is in effect. So, um, but as I say, that would make for a very interesting debate because it wouldn't just be left right uh, in that debate. You'd, you'd have some really, uh, interesting philosophical uh, discussions. And this will be our last question, so I just have to pass this down to this gentleman right here. Just remember who owns that microphone. <laughs> yes, Father. It's on loan right now. Uh, my question was taking it back to the licensure, and I'd actually like to use the, um, the example that you gave of the adoption um, and how Churches specifically were getting shut down. Um, their adoption services shut down. And yes. obviously that sounds like a really horrible thing. They're doing a really great thing, putting children in homes. It's a service that we need a lot more of. But uh, taking it back to the licensing, um, I'm not sure what it looks like, um, what, what plan you'd have for adoption to um, continue to be a service for good rather than, like if it wasn't licensed, I guess my question would be what's standing in between an adoption agency <clears throat> that with no oversight um, from being um, a potential for like child trafficking or something along those lines without any any higher power overseeing it. What's standing in between, other than just trust, I guess? No, 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 no. I think it's a very good question. Very good question. Um, in saying that, I don't that I'm against licensure in general. Um, I am not saying I'm against law. And especially in the case of adoption, uh, even less so in the case of other services, but especially in the case of adoption where you're dealing with human beings. Human beings are ends in themselves. They have rights in themselves. Human beings cannot be sold. 
uh, and any form of servitude or slavery uh, is, uh, is both morally and should be legally wrong because of the right to private property and because of uh, the importance of human freedom. So in the case of that, I think, again, there are ways in which we can uh, have law that says you can't do certain things that um, move toward um, uh, the sale of children. But on the other hand, don't dictate uh, that, for instance, this child uh, who is, for instance, um, let's say of one ethnic group, uh, can't be adopted by another ethnic uh, group. Because you have the phenomenon right now, a lot of African-American children can't be adopted because, largely because, of the obstacle that the, um, um, what is it called, the, uh, I forget what the name of the social workers group, the black social workers group has in their lobbying and preventing and making it more difficult. I mean, it's very... You just look in the United States and see the kind of uh, impediments to adoption, which is, explains why so many Americans do foreign adoptions, which is good for, for foreign children, you know. Uh, but I, I think there are ways in which you can have the rule of law, protect the rights that children have in themselves as human beings, uh, without having the state having to run the licensing things. I think you could have licensing agencies like Catholic Charities or like... Um, uh, uh, Bethany uh, Christian Services, uh, where you have responsible people, arguably every bit as and maybe more responsible than bureaucrats who are animated by, by bureaucracy rather than the good of the children. So I hope that addresses the question. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Thank you, Father Robert. <clears throat> As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.